You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning. How many would prefer to have Deidre and Robert continue? <laughs> Me too. Well, I'm just going to be hating on leadership today, so let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word, for the fact that you left no stone unturned to give us everything we need to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. And as we look into your word this morning, we see Paul with pointed information and pointed advice and pointed concerns about the church at Corinth. And and Lord, every age has churches that are Corinthian. And so we pray, Lord, this morning as you guide us and direct us by your Holy Spirit through your word, that we would pay attention, that we would be obedient and that we would love you. And we'll thank you in Jesus name. Amen. So we'll get to reading in in, uh, first Corinthians four here in a minute, but it's going to sound. Somewhat like I'm hating on leadership. And I don't want you to think that's what's going on. Because I'm not. But what has happened, what is normal, it seems like, for people to do, is to over-idolize people who are in positions of responsibility. And there's a couple of reasons I think people do that. One of them, and, and I'm talking about myself, is because I'm lazy. If somebody else will do it for me, Bring it on and I'll bring the popcorn. The other reason is we have a natural tendency, it seems like, to gravitate to people who are in positions of leadership when they're firm and they're convicted and they're sure and, and they've got it all down and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so we give them more of our devotion than God wants us to. Um, leadership is important, but the problem is, in my estimation, is that the people who are in leadership are looking at it wrong, too. People who are in leadership are servants first. And if they haven't got that right, then they shouldn't be there. Um, When we we actually have a term that we use in the the political world, it's called a public servant. None of them believe that. They don't believe they're a public servant. Most I shouldn't say none. Most of them don't. And unfortunately, we as as sometimes we we capitulate to that and we even build on it. Especially in the church, people who are in positions of responsibility are first lead, are servants, first servants. And so that's why it, last week we talked and one of the definitions that Paul gives to people that are in positions of leadership puts them in the bottom of a ship rowing it with a whip and a, a, a stern taskmaster. Now, I'm not you, you, metaphors always. You can only take analogies so far. We're humans and and our analogies will always break down. Only God has the perfect analogy and we'll see what that is in in perfection when we go to be with him. But for purposes of our discussion this morning, that's in the bottom of that ship. Those are the leaders. They're the ones who are serving. They're supposed to be serving. And what leadership means is you get to serve more people at one time. That's what it actually means. 
And so I kind of wanted to give that preface as I go through this, because Paul is dealing with a group of people who have just gotten to the point where they were factionalizing over leadership. And I, sir, I'm I'm with Peter. He's he's the head honcho. Well, I'm with Apollos. He was the man specifically placed by God over this church. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining some of their reasoning. The point being that our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ should be paramount. That's what should be evident in all of our lives, most most importantly, that we are devoted to God. And those who are in positions of responsibility over us, we appreciate them. Paul uses words like that. Appreciate, esteem, care for, pray for. But he never uses words that indicate that those who are in positions of leadership are some sort of God figure. They're not. And so, as we go through this, I just want us to keep that in the back of our minds, that leadership is important, but God is more important. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Servants of Christ is what my heading is. That's not scripture, but that's my heading. Let a man regard us in this manner, said Paul, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now... These things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you, no one of you, might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you to you, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of you have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod of or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So, as we, as we study the scripture in Sunday school, we break, at least my method has always been to break up it into verses and go verse by verse. 
And sometimes what gets lost in that is the reminder of context, local context. And so in this chapter, we're going to be looking, especially now, at Paul dealing with this factionalism that has occurred. And uh, he deals with it sternly. He deals with it uh, marvelously, uh, of course, because the Holy Spirit directed him. But he also deals with it in such a way that he uses what was prevalent in the time. He uses sarcasm and he uses hyperbole. Uh, so, but it's, you have to be so careful when you're, when you're using sarcasm and irony. He uses irony as well in this chapter. Um, and as Paul was directed by the Holy Spirit, it comes through loud and clear what he's trying to tell the Corinthians. So, he starts out in this chapter, okay, you want a way to deal, you want a way to regard us, the people that are putting responsibility over you, then regard us like this, that we are servants of Christ, first, and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's verse 1, which we finished last week. Then he says in verse 2, in this case, moreover, now he's going to give a definition. Of, okay, you, you're to look at us as stewards. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. And this is a word that means you can, as much as is possible in our fallen world, you can hang your hat on this person. They're trustworthy. Uh, they've been given a responsibility. They discharge that responsibility carefully, circumspectly, and willingly and delightedly. But they're trustworthy. If you have somebody, I have, I've been involved in a couple of situations where wills have been written. And uh, I actually wrote a will years and years ago when our kids were little and all that really was in it was what would happen to our kids if the two of us were killed. And we had to pick people that we believed would be very trustworthy in rearing our children in the ways of the Lord. And uh, <laughs> anyway, have, have any of you ever, well, don't raise your hands, but just, just a rhetorical question. If you've been involved in a situation that, involve, that involves a will, the executor of that will has to be a trustworthy person because they're being put in a position to deal with the, the transcript and the requirements of the will as much as possible in the exact same way as the person who wrote the will would do. And so that's what the trustworthy word here means. What this means is Paul is saying that stewards, servants of God, stewards of God, are required to deal with the people that the will is executed for, the church of God, in the same way that the testator, that the will maker, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Father, would do. So, the definition that we looked at earlier, steward, and uh, this one, we looked at the word steward, it's a manager of a household, a manager of a farm or a landed estate, an overseer, a superintendent of the city's finances, treasurer of a city, there was all kinds of definitions, but the idea was this person functioned as a responsible uh, executor of the will of the people over him. <clears throat> so Paul says, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And he's connecting that directly with the will of the Father, the will of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't need to be good looking or brilliant, well spoken or clever, even though God can use those things. He says what you need to be. What you need to be if you're going to be a servant of God and a steward of the mysteries of God is trustworthy. You need to be trustworthy. 
Because a, a steward is entrusted with the oversight of his master's household, his master must be able to trust him implicitly. This implies obedience, perseverance, diligence, perseverance, diligence, honesty, and dependability. When the Lord judges his masters, this is the absolute requirement that he will expect of them. Were they faithful to his commands? Were they trustworthy? Now, it's part of the responsibility of those under the servants, the servant leaders, to check them regularly against the word of God. That's the unique situation, and it's a wonderful one. A minister of Christ who executes his duty out of compulsion, expectation of enrichment, or any other motivation other than love of the master is an untrustworthy steward, an unfaithful steward. If his motivation is wrong, it always goes to motivation. Cutting corners, guessing and substituting intuition for the pure word of God are marks of a deceiver. And I don't believe I'm speaking too strongly. Faithfulness to the master implies and results in faithfulness to his children. Faithfulness to the master, a steward who is faithful to his master, implies that he'll be faithful to the children of the master. In the same way, a good steward, well, actually, in the opposite is true as well, which we looked at. But a good steward delights in taking the materials that the master of the household has provided and makes and using them to cause growth, flourishing and encouragement and comfort and possibly correction and instruction and, and rebuke as is necessary. But the last thing and the last thing a faithful steward wants is some is adulation, improper adulation. He is delighted to be doing the Lord's work. All the resources that are needed for the steward to properly execute his responsibilities are provided by the master of the household. The minister must be faithful, trustworthy in the use of those resources. He must not misuse the resources supplied for the work, and he must not mis twist or manipulate Scripture. And when he has done that accidentally, he must be open to correction and to rebuke his necessary. It's a remarkable situation because when we think of overlords, unfortunately we think of it that way, we think of a king and his subjects, and that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a relationship between those who have been put in a position of responsibility with the children of the king. So, any comments or questions about this as I go into this? And again, if you think I'm overstating the case, Paul does that somewhat here. He kind of, it, it seems like Paul has this pendulum sometimes and he properly swings it this way and then he swings it back and then he comes to a balance in his, in his statements. Or at least that's what it appears to me. Because he's constantly, especially in the Corinthian church, he's dealing with people who have just gone overboard. Uh, you give them an inch and they take four miles. Or stadia, I guess this was Rome. Any other comments? Any questions? Verse 3. Now, Paul says this, and this was an, enigma, an enigmatic statement. It is a very small thing. To me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. What? What do you mean? Didn't Peter say judgment should begin at the house of God? And so, it is always important for us to judge Scripture by other Scripture. To let other Scripture comment on Scripture. Paul said that I... 
it's a small thing, he said, for me to be examined by you in Corinth, to be investigated, to be scrutinized, to be sifted, to be questioned. Now, part of that was because his apostleship was often under attack. And uh, it seemed like he would often have to defend that. Uh, there were those who challenged his apostleship. And here in the Corinthian church, there were those who would rather listen to Peter or Apollos. Apparently, he was not charismatic enough for them. His presence wasn't inspiring. And so, in this sense, Paul lets the Corinthians know that their opinion of him matters very little in the great scheme of things. It is good for us, in one sense, not to put too much stock in someone else's evaluation of us. They don't know our heart, do they? And we can really harm one another when we intimate that we know their heart. We know someone's heart. We know why you're doing this. It's because, fill in the blank, and... All of us have been under that kind of condemnation, if you will, where someone thinks we're doing something for a reason that is not even close to the reason we're doing. And that's one of the things Paul's talking about. How many times have you been accused or denigrated for something that just wasn't true? <laughs> and had the person just given you the benefit of the doubt, they would have come to the right conclusion eventually. We are quick to judge, quick to pass judgment. The Corinthians were doing that. They were quick to elevate to positions of responsibility and leadership and then factionalize over them. <clears throat> this is not to say that we cannot observe inappropriate actions or behavior in someone's life and appropriately judge those actions as unbiblical, but we have no business attempting to look into the heart. That is the responsibility of the King of Kings. He knows the hearts. And he's and, and again, remember I said this morning, sometimes when we're when we're taking apart a verse and just picking it apart by, by text and verse and definitions. We miss the local context. And we're going to see the local context in just a minute here. Paul also makes reference uh, to a couple of other things. Now, in 1 Timothy 5, uh, a congregation... So, let me, let me back up a bit. A congregation must have confidence in their elders. They must have confidence in their elders. And it starts with believing that they're trustworthy. Do not... The, that confidence will be confirmed when those elders live and act accordingly to biblical truth. Now, while the elders should not overly concern themselves with examinations, if you will, of their motives, they should be sensitive to the concerns of the body. And, of course, if there's outward sin, there's a clear method of dealing with. And it's outlined at one, in one place in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 19-21. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin... However, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. So the body is given the responsibility of making sure the elders aren't living in sin. So it's a, it's a, it's a proper give and take. Paul also makes reference to the fact that God has clearly said that no man can even know his own heart. It is God who judges the heart. And so let us be sensitive by the word to the Holy Spirit, paying attention when we read his word for those confirmations of proper behavior and condemnations of improper behavior. Remember, bad theology results in bad behavior. And good theology can and generally does result in good behavior. So, and we're going to get to this. Uh, he figuratively applies this self to himself and Apollos and things that earlier on. Uh, but Paul is not at all saying that he doesn't answer 
to the congregation. Because in other scriptures, it's clear that elders have a responsibility to the congregation. But what he is saying is, you don't know my heart. And what has been happening here is the factional Corinthians were assuming they knew the hearts of these people and they were getting behind them in a, met- in a way that was improper. An improper way. Any comments or questions about verse 3? Verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, whether I'm conscious of myself or not. But the one who examines me is the Lord. So Paul says, I, I properly submit myself to the examination of the Lord. And where does that examination come from? Do you hear a voice out of the closet? That guy's bad. You better have the right kind of closet, is all I can say. No, it's right here. It's in the finished, perfect Word of God that was given to us. We have everything that is necessary to examine. Paul knew of no serious problems in his life. Indeed, he had submitted his entire life to the service of his Savior. However, he knew that even he, and I say it that way intentionally, could have been wrong in that assessment because of the fact that the human heart is so devious. And so he alludes to the fact that he willingly submits to the examination of God, and in that he rests. While he knew of no unfavorable things in his life, in his life even that was not his standard. His, his standard was the examination of the Lord, the Word of God. Diligent study and application of the Scripture and submission to the Holy Spirit uh, was, is the method by which Paul would maintain his life of service. It is a comforting thing when our heart does not condemn us. And that lack of condemnation can give us great boldness to serve God. First John uh, 3, 20 and 21. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our, own heart, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that while he loved them as a father, his ministry was given to him by God. And as such, he would be evaluated and rewarded or chastised by God properly through the body. Ultimately, a minister serves the body best only when he is a faithful and genuine servant of Christ himself and the steward of the mysteries of God. And God alone judges whether or not that spiritual service is valuable or not. There's going to be people who are, who, who are going to be told before the Lord, well done, thou good and faithful servant, who we might be thinking, oh, what? And there's going to be people who will be, and I use this kind of in a silly way, but not really, who will be cleaning up after Paul's horse and will be going, but shouldn't they be way up there? I remember a story about, like, I, I was going to look it up and I forgot to, but George Whitfield and John Wesley were kind of, in some ways, they had difficulties. Whitfield was asked about heaven and Wesleyan. I can't remember the exact point of the question, but his comment was instructive. He said, Mr. Wesley will be standing so close to the throne and I will be so far from the throne I will probably not be able to hear what he says. That's a proper attitude. Now, Whitfield was largely responsible, I think, for the Great Awakening that started in the early 1700s. And yet, he had a proper assessment of himself. It was God who brought that awakening. Maybe through his ministry, but it was God. So, any comments about conscious of nothing against myself? Now, we'll tie some of this up. Verse 5, therefore, Corinthians, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light 
the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Where pro- okay, that's, that's what the scripture says. Where it properly comes from. To tie this up, Paul cautions the Corinthians not to pass judgment, especially on the inner motives of people's hearts, but to wait until the Lord comes when he will bring to light, when he will bring light into the darkness of men's hearts. <coughs> he will disclose that most important of human characteristics, and that is the motives of men's hearts. It is evident from the word. It is evident in this case, though, that the word darkness doesn't necessarily mean evil here because it references the, the praise that will come from God, where it says he will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So it seems that it is simply that God will bring to light those things that we just don't know about. Those things that drove people to do what they did, especially those things that drove them to do the good that they did. The Corinthians were, were practiced at allotting praise to those whom they had judged to be the best. And scorn to those whom they were dismissing as less than effective. And there should be a clue. Would you not think that all three men, Peter, Apollos, and Paul, were probably properly serving the church of God? Yes. Based on the writings of the apostles. Based on scripture. So it's one thing to like one of them above the other. His preaching method, his delivery, etc. It's a whole other thing to condemn the other two. And why do we say it that way? Does the word another lose its A? <laughs> a whole nother thing? Well, anyway, uh, grammar Nazi strikes again. To like one more than the other is one thing. But to cause it to let you dislike the other two who are clearly stewards of God, servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of God, that should never be. Paul is telling the, the Corinthians. I kind of lost my place. So the Corinthians were practiced at allotting praise to those who they had judged the best and scorn to those whom they were dismissing as less than effective. Paul had been the recipient of that, that scorn, um, especially when those in the Corinthian congregation would brag up Peter or Apollos. Favoritism in this way is very destructive. And this was Paul's answer. He would not allow it to destroy him because he knew that the one who judged him knew his heart. He knew that the one who judged him knew why, knew his motives, knew why he was serving the Corinthians. And he calls them his beloved even after this. And he calls them his children in in an appropriate sort of way. And that he founded the church. He was their quote unquote father, if you will. And we'll see that later on. He would not allow it to destroy him. And in fact, he knew his heart. he, He knew his heart better than he that God knew his heart better than he did himself. He then makes reference to the fact that in that day of judgment, Men will actually be praised by God. Think about that. The creator of the universe is going to allot praise to men. We're his creation. Everything we are and everything that we have came from his hand. And yet he has decided that there will come a time when he will praise people. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. And, and we... And in, in Matthew, he talks about you have you've been faithful in a few things. You will be given many. How much, of course, how much praise is, is completely up to the creator. Do not, therefore, assume that we can properly evaluate the work of a servant of God completely 
God alone will properly evaluate each and every one of us on that day. So, as Paul is saying, let us not today, and Paul was warning the Corinthians of this, and the church all down through the ages, let us not improperly and irreverently bestow favoritism on one or another in our body. We are all equally precious in the sight of the Father. Are we not? And we must, must be convinced of that. Don't pass judgment before the time. Wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light both the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And that sounds kind of negative, but disclose the good motives. And then each man's praise will come to him from God, where it's most importantly comes from, from God himself. Any comments or questions? Now, these things, now Paul is alluding back to some stuff earlier in the book, in the epistle. These things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. How often do we exceed what is written? We read something and we come to some unbelievable conclusions about what is in the Scripture. And more often than not, it's just a flight of fancy or imagination. Um, we're going to talk about one of the heresies that was that uh, that has possibly arisen from some of this and uh, how um, an early church steward, uh, servant, dealt with those heresies. Um, so he figuratively applies this to himself so that no one you will learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. When we exceed the, the scripture, when we exceed improperly the scripture, what is written, it creates this idea that we have something nobody else has. And it fosters arrogance. It fosters a holier than now, a better than better than you. I know something. You, you didn't figure this out. I figured this out. You know, I, I, I just have to say that in the last 2,000 years, I'm thinking everything that could have been probably thought of about the Scriptures has happened. It just, if you look far enough, you'll find out that this idiot idea, it was probably promulgated in the 1300s too. You know, and this stupid idea, it probably came forth in the 900s. I'm just, I'm making um, just generalizations here. But I think, I think people can be stupid real quick. And so the scripture, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to go beyond what is written. And we can do that accidentally. Something came up this morning. I, I had been thinking about this. We can do that accidentally just by not thinking it through and comparing it with other scripture. Um, and it's important not to do that. So now back to this verse, these things, these things, brethren, these things refers to the analogies that Paul has used in this section. He used farmers in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. He used builders in chapter 3, 10 through 15. And then servant stewards in the verses just preceding this, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, referring to the ministers of God. And now he's saying that he figuratively applied these to himself and to Apollos. Why? So that the Corinthians would stop going beyond what was written. And I would, I would submit to you that the book of 1 Corinthians has had some stuff People have gone beyond what is written in later on chapters pretty much more than any other book. Would that be a fair assessment, Justin, you think? Or 
I mean, there's there's things in the later chapters of First Corinthians that people have taken to such extremes that you, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, so he wanted them not to go beyond what the scripture had been given to them in their, so that the Corinthians wouldn't go beyond and in their evaluation and their devotion to men that God had put in positions of responsibility in the bother. Further, this would prevent them from factionalism and becoming, as he says, arrogant, lifting one up against the other. Apparently, there's a connection here. When we go beyond what is written in Scripture, it, it fosters arrogance and factionalism. And obviously, it's going to because those who are devoted to the clear exposition of Scripture are going to say, uh, that's not quite right. That, you know, you're, you're, you're reading into the text here and it's going to cause a division. It can cause division. When the Corinthians began to practice things that were not written in the Scriptures, things that Paul had not delivered to them when he founded the church, they, as well as modern churches, all down through the ages, began to exhibit behaviors and doctrines that had no foundation in the Bible. When the Corinthians or we, exceed what is written. In many cases, we began to believe we know more than others. <laughs> the arrogance that comes with this is what drives the factionalism that can split the Christian church, including the Corinthians in Paul's time and whoever in our time. What is written, what is written about how to treat the ministers of God? Actually, plenty is written, and I'm going to give us six scriptures that we'll look at this morning, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end with that. Paul was unnecessary to be examined, as we mentioned earlier. I missed that one. Proper response to ministers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. To appreciate comes from the Greek word to see and know. It implies the idea that there's relationship. Uh, and that those who diligently labor, labor are to be esteemed and respected and cared for. This appreciation and esteem, though, is only to be given to those who diligently labor among the flock. They are not busy elsewhere so much that they cannot spend time with those to whom, with whom God has entrusted them. First Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. Then, 1 Timothy 5, 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. To rule well is to have responsibility over... And execute that responsibility in an excellent and biblical way. And who is responsible for keeping, for remembering and maintaining that the elders are, are uh, executing their responsibilities in a biblical way? The Bereans are. And who are the Bereans? Oh, I thought you guys were like from Kootenai and Ponderay and Sandpoint. You're from Berea. You are. And I like it. He takes responsibility very seriously, this elder does, and he loves those who he is serving. The double honor is actually a monetary term and applies specifically and especially in the modern church to the one who is earning his living by working himself to weariness, serving the flock that God has given to him. Hebrews 13:7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. To remember is to call to mind to be thinking about. This would imply prayer for and concern for the leadership. The requirement is that they are speaking the word of God and that their conduct is worth imitating. Let them 
uh, the Greek word is actually the Greek word for the word mimic. A mime or a mimic. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For, the grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. This is not the Greek word for slavish, unquestioning subservience. It is a word that means to be persuaded and in context, recognizing that those who are persuading are doing it because they want to train, serve, teach, exhort, admonish, and care for those under them, under their responsibility. There is every understanding that here that the body does not blindly obey their leadership, but rather recognizes that they have been put in a position of responsibility by God, by the Lord, and as such, they are in obedience to God. They are in obedience to God, as dictated by the pages of Scripture, and that as they are in obedience to God, their admonition is profitable and useful in the lives of those under them. It is a qualified obedience, and it is much different than the obedience that we are to give to the Lord himself. That would be unquestioned obedience to the word of God and to the Lord himself through it. And then regarding Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 29, verse 29, Paul said to the uh, Philippians, he said, <clears throat> Uh, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. The high regard spoken here comes from the Greek word, which means precious, valued and honorable. It implies that they are acting as such, that the Philippians would be acting as such. And then, to, as I kind of say, to tie it up. Here's another verse to remember. In First Peter five, he says, and you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility, one toward another, toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here is one of the scriptures that brings this full circle. We are all to be submitting to one another in an appropriate way. When you come to me with help for my life, whether it be reproof, admonishment, rebuke, correction, or encouragement, as it is biblical, I am to be in submission to you in the same way. And again, it sounds like I'm hating on leadership, and I'm not. I would say today, more than any other, I'm seeing an unhealthy, overt slavishness to the people who have been put, especially in political leadership over us. I'm not talking about rebellion, but proper, proper understanding of our relationship to one another. And so, the members of the body of Christ submit to one another, and how they do that is a remarkable thing. Those who have been put in a position of leadership understand that that position was given to them by the king and that they only hold it as they are obedient to him. It is not necessarily a lifetime appointment, but it can be. It is a position of responsibility and esteem, but it must be put in perspective to the esteem we give to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and to the esteem we give to one another as family, body of Christ. Those who are under the leadership are under that leadership voluntarily and have the responsibility to esteem those over them, but to do in such a manner that it takes nothing away from their, your, their devotion, their love, and their submission to God himself. It's, a, it's different than what you see in kingdoms, earthly kingdoms, earthly political relationships. It's different. It's remarkable. And it's only able to be done as such as the believers are in submission to the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit. And uh, 
So again, I'm not trying to demean or diminish the responsibility of leadership, but also I believe as Paul is trying to do here, he's not trying to elevate it in such a way that it becomes our focus. The primary thing at the beginning of this, we said this morning, we talked about this morning, is that those in positions of responsibility must be trustworthy. And I believe Paul was trying to communicate to the Corinthians that Paul, Apollos, and Peter, Cephas, were all trustworthy and therefore should properly be esteemed. Any questions or comments? Ron? Yeah. Uh, but, and you're right, you're absolutely right. Everyone hear that? Uh, it would be far better, he was talking about the political scene today, how it seems like they get on the stage and tear each other down when it would be far better if they simply said what they were going to do. And here's what's, what I will do. And, and said about other people, here's what's good. Instead of the demeaning that goes on. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. And that's what caused Paul to feel like he had to defend not only himself, but his apostleship. Because something must have been being said about the fact that Paul wasn't an apostle. Because he had to be defending that. It's, it's important to be brave enough to take on that which is that which is wrong. But can we start, I would think, as Ron has pointed out here, with praise, start with encouragement, and then move on to the things that are necessary as they are necessary. We have plenty of plenty of and I'm not <laughs> I'm gonna get way off into the weeds here, so I'm gonna stop right there and leave it at what Paul says. He said, there's going to be people who are standing before the Lord who are going to have Him praise them. We should be glad about that. Let's pray. Father, we know You're not opposed to the humble. You give grace to the humble. But You're opposed to the proud. And it doesn't matter whether that proud person is in the body or in leadership or... And actually, I shouldn't even divide it that way because those who are in leadership are in the body. But it doesn't matter they're man's position, but what you have done and what you are doing in the lives of those who seek to obey you. And so this morning, if we take away from this, this message this morning, in the first, first six chapters of First Corinthians chapter 4, that you have a purpose for leadership, but that it is a biblical and a godly purpose. And that, that those people in leadership must be trustworthy. That's your prime responsibility, prime concern. And so we ask for that. And we'll thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.